0: and welcome back to another episode of The Rage Podcast. I'm your host, Mikaela Parker, and we have a very special episode for you today. As many of you may know, this year marks the 10th anniversary of iRise. With this in mind, we will be taking a look back at the last six seasons of The Rage Podcast and ruminate on the discussion topics in previous seasons that are still relevant today. So let's kick it off with season one. In season one, we are introduced to Professor Tom Romero. Professor Romero is an associate professor of law and is affiliated faculty with the Department of History. The author of numerous articles, book chapters, and essays, Professor Romero teaches and researches in the areas of the legal history of the American West, Latinos and the law, immigration law, school desegregation, property, law use, water law, and urban development and local government in the United States. A native Denverite and undergrad alum of the University of Denver, Professor Romero is a graduate of the University of Michigan, where he received his JD and PhD in history. Currently, Professor Romero is revising a book manuscript on multiracial formation and the law in post-World War II Denver, Colorado, where among other aspects of the analysis, he extensively explores Keys v. School Board No. one us 413-US-189-1973, the first non-Southern school desegregation case to reach the United States Supreme Court. In collaboration with the Denver Law Review, Dr. Romero helps to organize a special symposium that analyzes the impact and importance of the Keys case since it was decided in 1973. He also works on several projects related to the past history and current challenges of race, immigration, and water law, known as the Color of Water Law Project. These projects include a book chapter that examines the intersection between developments in water and immigration law in the 19th and early 20th century, and a community-based participatory research project on water access and water quality issues impacting a Latinx neighborhood in Denver, Colorado. As Associate Provost for IE Research and Curriculum Initiatives for the larger university, Professor Romero has worked to make the University of Denver one of the premier institutions in the country for the rigorous study of social and institutional inequality through the university's IRISE initiative. Professor Romero is an active member of Latcrit Inc, Law and Society, the American Studies Association, the Western History Association, and the Hispanic National Bar Association. This season allows us the opportunity to hear from different scholars regarding activism in higher education, women of color in academia, and anti-colonial healing. In episode four, we are introduced to Kevin Wilmot, Professor of Film and Media Studies at the University of Kansas. Professor Wilmot is a screenwriter, producer, and director working with the likes of Oliver Stone, Martin Sheen, Whoopi Goldberg, Wes Studdy, and most in the news as of recent, Spike Lee. Indeed, Professor Wilmot recently received an Academy Award in the adapted screenplay category for co-writing the Spike Lee joint, Black Klansman. The following is a clip from that episode.
1: Sure. Well, you know, I, I, I think growing up, I grew up in, a, in this little small town, Junction City, but it was a really, it was a really diverse city. It was an army town. And, uh, and so, you know, I tell people the street I grew up on, um, you know, 20,000 people live in this town but the Buffalo soldiers were stationed there, And so they went all over the world and they brought wives from all over the world back home, you know, to Kansas. And so my block, just one block in a small Kansas town, um, it's a white couple live next door to us. Cross Street was a black and Japanese family. from was a black family, black and Korean, black and Filipino, a black and Chinese, uh, black and Vietnamese, black and Italian, uh, black and German, uh, this is all on one block in a little small Kansas town. Wow. And, and it really taught me that race doesn't matter. We were all, all kids, you know, trying to just have fun. And race does matter because, you know, uh, it's really important for you to know who you are and for you to be proud of who you are and to kind of connect with your identity. And, um, and at that time, um, the city... Didn't celebrate that diversity. It was it was ashamed of it, and it was, and Junction City kind of had a bad reputation for a lot of things. But I think in the end, it was kind of also because it was so interracial, and uh and and that to me was the thing that really kind of branded me. I think, and and I experienced discrimination growing up, and I I saw racism, and I've always been someone that kind of you know I guess my parents raised me right. I care about others a little bit.
2: You know, and it's hard to see people being mistreated, um, and and not respond to that. I mean, the thing,
1: I think the growing up the older guys in the neighborhood. I you know, I, I grew up in the early '70s and late '60s, and I was a little kid then. But um,
2: but I heard those conversations from the older guys in the neighborhood, and and at
1: that time, you responded to the problem. I mean, there was no talking about the problem. It was just, you talked about the problem and then you responded to it, sure. you, you acted, you did something. I mean, you know, you, you, you were, you know, growing up at that time, you were used to seeing people, you know, uh, be, be activists and, and to Dr. King and, and, you know, the Bergen brothers and all the great people in the sixties in and seventies um, that try to make it a better place. Yeah. And so I think all of that had a big influence on, on me and, and, and the films I, I try to make. A friend of mine asked me that the other day, and, um, and I don't know how I do it, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, uh, I think it might, it might be from that time of growing up and in that period, that was a time when you didn't pull any punches. I mean, the 60s and the 70s, you know, you know at least the mid 70s, you know, people didn't pull punches then. I mean, they kind of, they confronted power and they they weren't afraid to confront power. They weren't afraid to kind of speak the truth to power. Uh, And, um, and fortunately, I I don't know, it might be the style in which I do it. (laughs) I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think the fact that when you make films, um, and you, you're ultimately trying to entertain people, um, and I try to. I try to. When I talk about these things, I, I I think about them before I say them. I don't just kind of spout stuff off, you know. I, um, you know, I I don't mind offending the people that should be offended. That's that's just straight out. I don't mind doing that. And um, but I want to explain myself in a way that hopefully you understand what I'm talking about. And that part of it, hopefully, helps to navigate. The, the world of this stuff, because especially now, I mean, people are just taking taken out of context all the time, you know. And and people are misunderstandings happen all the time. And um, I try to, and you can still be say something, and and the and the and the quote be, you know, separated from what you said the earlier part of the interview or something. You know what I mean? And 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 you could sometimes not sound as, you know. Uh, sincere or whatever as you might want to sound. But I try not to push anybody away. You know, um, you know when you talk about uh, the president or somebody like that, um, you know, those people in power. And, and in that sense, you don't have to give them um, that kind of respect. I mean, when people are in power, um, they're, they're affecting other people's lives and 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 so the thing where i grew up with was that and kind of learned and believe that you have a responsibility to to, to speak to power and you have a responsibility to tell the truth to power and um and you hopefully you do it in a way that people understand what you're talking about but um that same technique is how we make our films as well i mean we don't we don't pull any punches. In our films, and the fact that something like Black Landsman, um, you know, wins an Academy Award, um, I think probably part of the reason it won is because we didn't pull any punches, because we spoke truth to power. And I think, fortunately, I mean, sometimes you're punished for it, sometimes you get hate mail for it, yeah. uh, and sometimes you're celebrated for it. And this is one of the times I think we were celebrated. The joke I always tell people is that I think I'm the only person in the country. Spike and myself and a couple other guys that have benefited from Donald Trump's presidency (laughs) you know because no one asked me do you really think it's that bad still no one asked that of (laughs) you everybody knows it's that bad still and uh, so it's made it's made my work uh, far more relevant because I've been trying you know we were always trying to say hey this is a problem and uh, now everybody believes us
0: (laughs) in season two we are introduced to host Hashira Sol Ashimu. Hashira Sol Ashimu, born and raised in Northeast Denver, an East Angel graduate, received his college degree from the HBCU Howard University, and later traveled the world, where he would spend a decade of his life living in Africa, raising his family in Ghana. Hashira is a prolific writer, speaker, Facilitator, communications professional who has been using his talents, experiences, and skills to create and support stimulating, engaging, and innovative community initiatives that usher in social change. In addition, he has worked in the nonprofit and governmental sector in the United States and five African nations. Known as H Soul by his harshest critics and beloved community. Hashira is a community organizer dedicated to the pursuit for social equity and education justice for society's most vulnerable children, black, brown, indigenous, special needs, and those living in poverty. Hashira Sol Ashimu is the founder and executive director slash co-director of two grassroots organizations, hashtag breaking our chains and hashtag our voices, our schools, respectively. Both organizations originated in Colorado and have built strong local and national platforms. The quote that pumps revolution through his veins and social justice in and out of his lungs is derived by Asada Shakur. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose, but our chains. Season two tackles topics like white fragility, activism, and the historical connection between the slave patrol and modern day policing. In the first episode of the season, Roses in the Concrete, teaching liberatory hip hop in urban high school, Soul talks to Sebastian or Seb Elkaby, about the importance of hip-hop and its roots within the Black community as well as other cultures across the U.S. and globally. Here's a clip from that episode.
2: I, um, you know, the hip-hop for me goes back in the very early 80s as a as a little b-boy, um, you know, around 80, 80 82, you know, 81, 82, 83, around, around that time. But I think what really 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 made me realize the type of power that hip-hop was is when i first heard the message by uh grandmaster flash in the Finnish five Mm -hmm. which i think is a story that you know a lot of people my age can relate to you know that's really what cracked it open for me because prior to that you know i just you know hip-hop is just this thing that you live with that you see around you you know you can't really identify it especially at that time you know, you just you just do it. Like I said, I was just a people boy, life Because that's what people in you know in my area were doing. You know, so but it's it's really that song that made me realize, like, wait a minute, you you can do this. You can you can talk about these things, and you can do it like that. You can do it through rap, and it's be so so empowering and so impactful. You know, and I was you know I was a little kid. I was uh, I was like what twelve or something or eleven. You know, so I didn't even really understand the the scope of or the magnitude of what this song was about. Because I know, you know, in my, you know, in that, that preteen mind, you know, I couldn't possibly have understood what everything in that song meant. Right. But what I did understand was significant enough for me to know that this was something special. And I remember the first time I heard that song, telling myself, and this is this is like vivid, this is a vivid memory, I remember telling myself like, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my life, but whatever I do, it's gonna have something to do with this. I then go on to ask Seb, could he talk about the consciousness in hip hop, why he was attracted to it, and what he sacrificed, and what oftentimes most artists, community organizers must sacrifice in order to stay true to the consciousness of hip hop. You know, uh, but I was always on the conscious tip. So that's always been my thing. So, you know, you're talking about during the golden age of hip hop. You're talking about that time when, you know, Rakim and, and, and Public Enemy and, you know, when Big yeah. say Daddy King, except, you know, all these, all these artists, all these conscious artists, you know, Queen Latifah, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's, this is the time when the, the Zulu-vation is, um, you know, has has a huge hold and a huge presence in hip-hop. You know, this is the time when, you know, there's the Afrocentric themes and pro-black themes in hip-hop, you know, when people are learning about, you know, Malcolm and the Black Panthers and, you know, are learning about Kemet and ancient civilizations, you know, and Mr. Farrakhan is, you know, really, really being, you know, sampled and used on so many tracks, you know, the Nation of Islam, you know, when the uh, 5 Percenters are a big part of, of hip-hop of course. You know, this is an educational uh, uh, period for you know all all the people at the time who were really being Im- impacted and influenced by that time. So I'm, I'm a product of that.
0: Season three centers the themes of equity, community organizing, black anger, and white denial. In episode four, the prodigal son, Soul sits down with Terrence T. Rob Roberts to talk about his legacy, Denver local politics and the city's history regarding topics like race. Here's a clip from the episode.
3: When I was doing my religious studies in prison, um, you know, some of those Bible stories really, like, really struck me. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, like, the story, you know, when, you know, um, like, let's say the story of the prodigal son, man, just to see everything he had been through, and it reminded me of myself. I remember when I first read that story, man, like, you know how you kinda got tears in your eyes, but you, you know, you acting tough so you don't want nobody to find. <laughs> You know, was, you know, I was trying to change, but I you know, I, I was still a little bit too tough to, you know, let all these 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 hardcore brothers see me cry. But I had never heard that story before, man. It was all of us brothers sitting in this round table, Crips and Bloods. And we had a brother named uh, Douglas P. J. He was one of the original Crips out of Los Angeles. And he was leading our Bible study in the, in the pod. and He was just reading the story. He was like just a phenomenal speaker, preacher, just a good mentor type of brother. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know when he reading this story, he was just like, "This is like, this is you. This is like, who who else is this? This is you, Terrence." You know and I'm just listening, and he just like, you know, like this young man just squandered everything. Like God gave him everything, and when he squandered it, he didn't he didn't have nowhere to go. And he was like, where you got to go? Where you going to go? When you get out, where you going? Who wants you? And I'm, I'm just like, nobody. You know, no, I didn't have no women. I didn't have no really no friends. No more. I mean, I didn't want to gangbang no more. And definitely the Crips didn't want me hanging around, scumbagging around five points. You know what I mean? So, right. uh, you know, and everything that story said, it resonated with me. And then, you know, and then he was just like, but look what happened. It was like. When he came home, when he like admitted his faults and he humbled himself and came home to his father, like his father seen him afar off. And when his father seen him afar off, he ran to him and, and, and he hung on him and he cried and he gave him some brand new shoes for his feet. And I love shoes. You know what I mean? So <laughs> resident. he gave him a royal robe, you know, and he, and he told him, go kill the fatty calf and let's have a feast. And his own brother got jealous, and his brother's like, "Why are we doing this for him? I've been here for you, you know." And his and the father was like, "You know, your brother was lost, and now he's found. You know, like you should be like happy for your own brother, you know." And his own brother got jealous, and I was dealing with some of that too, you know. So, just that story really resonated with me, so I, I kept that story just on my heart, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, and um, um, through my years when I ended up going back to D.O.C. And when I got out of prison, I went to a halfway house and I was working at Einstein Bagels, actually. And uh, I just wanted to go volunteer with some kids. So I started like a little chess program and playing checkers and stuff with the kids at Halle Elementary. Um, and a friend of mine named um, Eric Marin, you know, his father is Trig Marin. So um, I went and well, I went, did a speech at the school and I spoke in, in, to his class. And then I, would, I asked him, I said, man, I want to come volunteer a couple days out the week. It was like you could you could have the kids Tuesdays and Thursdays, so I literally cut my hours at Einstein's, and I started volunteering with the kids. Uh, then um, I started Prodigal Sun. The only reason why I started Prodigal Sun was just so I could raise like four or five hundred dollars, so I could take the kids hiking and stuff because they wanted to do more than just play checkers and chess at at, at Halle. and I didn't make enough money. I was probably making twelve dollars an hour or something at Einstein's, um, so. I just I did my 501C3 paperwork in my basement, and once I got my de- designation, I was literally raising money from the, the Cherry Creek kids' parents, at um, who went to Cherry Creek. You know, so like I had Jack Elway and his sisters, Jordan Elway, and them coming to hang out with me, and the whole football team. I was going to the Cherry Creek uh, football games, and the parents ended up falling in love with me at the store, and I ended up raising about fifty thousand um, dollars working at Einstein's. And when I raised that money, man, I ended up quitting Einstein's and I started working for the Denver Children's Home. They hired me, even though I'm a, I am have four felonies. I'm a four-time felon. Uh, they knew of my gang history. They told me to write an essay to explain why I joined the gang and how I got out, and they wanted to check my writing skills and see where my head was at. And I wrote, like, this five-page memoir on my gang history and what I wanted to do with the youth. And um, the Denver Children's Home hired me to be a caseworker. And uh, I was doing Prodigal Sun part-time. So I was doing that for a while. And my program started growing. Now all the kids from Halle wanted to come because we were going hiking and rafting. And then what really ended up taking me into the next level of activism was when the Holly was arsoned in 2008.
0: In season four, we are introduced to a new host of the Rage podcast, Karis Fox. Karis is an alumna of the University of Denver class of 2022, where she double majored in English and political science with a minor in history. Caris worked as the program and research assistant with the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE, at the University of Denver. While in this position, Caris led the Remember X research project tasked with assessing the effectiveness of current diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives in providing a safe and empowering campus experience for community members with marginalized identities. Dedicated to community organizing and community care, CARS has worked at the Blue Bench, a rape crisis center in Denver, to facilitate conversations with groups across demographics about the importance of consent, healthy relationships, and combating sexual violence in the community. She has also facilitated community based conversations about the intersectionality of race and sexuality, Black mental health and well being, and education equity. Season four specifically centers mental health and wellness, coalition building, and combating sexual violence. In the episode titled From Veganism to Incarceration, Food Justice, Exploitation, and the Abuse of Bodies, Caris and guest Dr. Jessica Ordaz and Dr. Laura de Calvaldo discuss veganism, food justice, and the incarceration system. Dr. Ordaz introduces the writing process and history behind her new book, The Shadow of El Centro, a history of migrant incarceration and solidarity. Dr. De Calvado deconstructs the representation of prisons and female inmates in film and the role that film plays in molding public opinions about incarceration and those incarcerated. This episode also examines the parallels between the food industry and the incarceration system regarding the abuse of bodies and exploitation for profit. Lastly, our guest addressed popular narratives about the legality and illegality of persons and justified imprisonment. Here's a clip from that episode.
4: Sure. So for, you know, for me, when I was doing the research, I found that, you know, those who suffered the most or at least the harshest were um, the dairy cows, basically the female um, dairy, dairy cows. And in terms of I don't know if you're not familiar with The Handmaid's Tale. Right, like that's the everyday life of a female cow, basically, who is forced for dairy and whatnot. It's just like forced to be impregnated, um, taking the child away, and there are so many parts. And I'm I identify strongly as a feminist, and um, it just it broke my heart just reading all that in terms of, you know, very patriarchal system, all about profit, um, taking female bodies as property basically. um, And it's all about reaping benefits and, and influencing cultural mindsets at the same time where people think, okay, you know, cows are there just for um, human milk. Well, actually cows are there for, you know, their own cow's milk and and stuff like that. And, you know, um, things of that nature of just kind of changing something that should be um, natural. And it's just kind of, you know, warped in order to serve um, interests of humans and profit, essentially right how can you maximize the most amount of profit you know and nowadays you might even go past farms and see cows with giant holes in them because it's much easier so you can just put the stuff in whatever kind of hormonal treatments and stuff you want in them you just see these I forget what it's called but it's just horrifying I remember seeing it and like pulling over and just crying by the side of the road um and just things like that like I just wish more folks would make a connection it when I found out Angela Davis was vegan I'm like oh finally another person make it makes sense you know and she speaks widely about the the intersection between gender and food justice and incarceration and and whatnot and i just hope more people speak around this issue um, because it's not as talked about you know people tend to see food as food rather than more um humanized elements or humanized not the valued elements i guess right
5: yeah and to add to what lauren just said i actually didn't realize how much i was highlighting both food and and references to animals in my latest book until somebody recently asked me like oh did you intentionally do that especially since you're vegan and i was like well it wasn't intentional but clearly on a subconscious level i'm very interested in these topics and so in my work um the idea, like a lot of migrants in the testimonies that I highlight reference, like feeling like animals in the way that they're caged, incarcerated and brutalized and dehumanized. And as someone who's interested in the liberation for all, that the, both of those things are important for me. Right. Absolutely. The treatment of animals um, as well as as human beings. Um and, and I also talk about food in the sense that I write about hunger strikes. I write about the poor quality of food in detention. And in, in addition to that, in, in an early chapter, I write about making profit by providing folks who are either incarcerated as migrants or braceros um, by feeding them food that is relatively inexpensive and lacks nutrition and then that's a profit for someone uh and so yes food and ideas of of being treated like an animal actually do come up in in my book quite a bit
0: (laughs) centers around the themes of student activism environmental justice and collaboration in the legacy part three episode i don't feel safe Addressing the threats, retaliation, and backlash that student leaders and their allies receive at DU, the Legacy Series explores the lived experiences and impact of student leaders at the University of Denver. This series has three goals center decolonization and inform the DU community of DU's colonial roots and perpetuation of racism, hate, and discrimination memorialize the resistance and brilliance of student leaders and their allies, offering a behind the scenes look at their labor. And lastly, to alert the DU community to the harms that are continually afflicted upon student leaders at the University of Denver. This episode explores the advocacy and hardships of student leaders who choose to participate in activism to create safer spaces for those with marginalized identities. So here is a clip from that episode.
6: Leading up to Do Better, I started working in like anti gender-based violence work mm-hmm. my freshman year of college at DU. I joined a student organization that was called CESA at the time, Student Coalition to Eradicate Sexual Assault. It had been created a couple years before I started here during um, when there was, protests happening at campuses all across the country when the hunting ground documentary came out. Um, it was a big conversation and we created a student org on campus and then nothing was really happening. Mm -hmm. My freshman year, two seniors were leading the organization and we put on a couple of events, but like we weren't really doing much. So I talked to them at the end of the year about wanting to lead the organization the next year. And I ended up being president my sophomore, three senior years. And I just kept hitting wall after wall. Um, My emails to Chancellor Chop were not being answered. Um, I couldn't get anybody to talk to me. We hosted events, like, we hosted sexual health events. We hosted, um, like, open mic nights for survivors to share their stories. But it was always something that, like, very few people came to. People didn't really know our student organization existed, and I couldn't really get anyone in charge to talk to me. Yeah. Um, which is why my senior year, I decided that we needed to create something actually my junior year, I had tried to create a Tumblr account to Mm -hmm. do kind of a similar thing. And it didn't take off. Um, so my senior year, I decided, okay, let's make an Instagram account and let me try one more time before I leave to you to really see if we can get traction on this, but it was countless hours and like being frustrated and emails that like i couldn't get any attention before this started and i think honestly it just it was a combination of timing and luck that it ended up taking off at all yeah
4: there was kind of when we had first actually met at like the remember x uh, planning session that's kind of something that you had said about you were like sending all these emails and no one was being responsive and we've had like similar things where until you get the greater like campus community to know about it then you might get some response did you experience that too but like when you go directly to them you don't really like get any
6: yeah (laughs) i would say it was a combination of like we got a new chancellor chancellor hafner who Mm -hmm. like was more responsive to the issue i would say and it was, like, we got media interviews. We did yeah. 11 media interviews in two weeks, and then finally the university wanted to talk about it. And the Denver Post. Yeah. yeah. I remember our first media interview, I think, was cha- with Channel 4, like, the local news station. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing the interview, they were like, we've reached out to DU, and they said they're not going to comment. Mm-hmm. And then by the time our interview came out, they had actually told the Title IX coordinator to go do an on-camera interview with him. Like, they had realized that they actually needed to say something. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, they were willing to talk about it. So mm-hmm. I definitely think it took external pressure, Mm -hmm. for sure. And I think it was that also. And because of my position in the undergraduate student government, I was there when we got a briefing from campus safety fall quarter of my senior year, when they told us that there were numbers of druggings happening on campus that like, weren't necessarily reflected in campus safety's reports, and that they were concerned about a local bartender drugging students. And that was really concerning to me. Um. And so Once we started asking questions about that, combined with the news interviews, I think that that's when they finally felt like they had to respond.
0: The Rage podcast was created to provide critical insight into one of the most vexing topics to our date. In an era of Black Lives, The Wall, the Flint Water Crisis, and Standing Rock, just to name a few, everyone is talking about race. Not surprisingly, race scholars have often been front and center in these formulations, as seen in scores of recent books, op-eds, essays, blogs, and articles, and results in backlash. In higher education, we have either taken for granted or ignored altogether the emotional, professional, and even physical risk being undertaken by race scholars. Though race scholars have been doing important and insightful scholarship, research, and creative work for decades— the work has rarely led to any revolutionary change on our campuses or the communities that we serve. Instead, the work of race scholars has often been marginalized and silenced, while policies, practices, and discourse of colorblindness and post-racialism has reigned supreme on our campuses and in our local politics. The result has often left race scholars silently raging at the in and inability of higher education to take racial privilege and anti-racist discourse seriously. On the RAGE podcast, we interview race scholars around the country about the personal and professional challenges of academics committed to critical race methodology and one scholarship, teaching, and community engagement. For the last six seasons of the RAGE, Each host has explored different yet similar themes regarding inequality, activism, and scholarly resistance. For the past 10 years, iRise has been a leader on the University of Denver's campus and the Rage podcast has helped amplify the scholarly work of many activists, community organizers, and other social justice practitioners. As my graduation fast approaches, and my time as host of The Rage Podcast comes to an end, I'm forever thankful for the opportunity I had to express myself creatively through this vessel. I never imagined in my wildest dreams that this would be my path, and yet I wouldn't change it for the world. So as we wrap up season six of The Rage Podcast in the next few weeks, I want to thank you all for tuning in and continuing to engage with our incredible guests and their work. And I also, quickly before we end the episode, Want to shout out and congratulate the Denver Nuggets on making it to the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history. Congratulations to them and congratulations to the city of Denver. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Rage Podcast. The RAGE Podcast is the product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe, follow, like, or share on the platform you are listening to us on. For RAGE opportunities and updates, please follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The RAGE Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. Stay safe and you are loved.